0: Hey there, it's Stephen Dubner. I want to thank you for listening to Tell Me Something I Don't Know and also for spreading the word. The show has already been downloaded more than 5 million times. So, all of us who make the show that's Allison Hockenberry, Emma Morgenstern, Harry Huggins, Brian Gutierrez, David Herman, Dan DeZula, Rachel Jacobs, Andrew Dunn, and myself we're all grateful that you have invited us into your ears. The episode you're about to hear is our season two finale. But don't worry, We'll be back soon with Season 3, starting on June 4th. In the meantime, why don't you come to one of our live tapings? We'll be in Minneapolis on April 26th and 27th, in Philadelphia on May 8th and 9th, in Terrytown, New York on June 3rd, and back in New York City on June 9th, 10th, 15th, and 16th. For tickets and info, or even better, to come on the show and try to tell me something I don't know, please visit TMSIDK.com. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy this extra special season finale episode of Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Why do I read? Why do I have conversations?
1: Why do I travel? Why do I have to go to
0: school? Why do I pay attention? Why do I pay attention? I pay attention? Because I want to be amused. Because I want to get outside my comfort zone. But mostly 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 because because I want to find, find out stuff. stuff. Find out stuff. Find
2: out stuff
0: <laughs> because I want you to- to tell, tell me something,
3: something I
0: don't, don't know. So here's one. Ready? Yeah, we're ready. Do I have to introduce myself or anything? Yeah, sure. Introduce yourself. Uh, hi, this is Jeff Goldblum. All right, Jeff Goldblum, tell us something we don't know. I may be wrong about this whole thing, but I think Vladimir Horowitz, a
4: great pianist, said that if he missed one day of practice, he knew it. He knew it. He he knew how his fingers worked and how he played the music. He knew it. If he missed two days, the critics knew it. And if he missed three days, the audience would know it.
0: It may have been Horowitz who said that. It may have also been Paderewski or Pavarotti. In any case, thanks to Jeff Goldblum for helping us introduce the theme of tonight's episode. It's music. something I don't know is live journalism wrapped in a game show and tonight we're coming to you from the Skirball Center for the Performing Arts at New York University to talk about music. We have put together a rock star panel. Would you please welcome the writer and critic David Haydu, the multi-hyphenated performer Faith Saley, and the music business legend Danny Goldberg. Let's begin with David Heydu. Here is what we know about you so far. You are the author of four books, including the Billy Strayhorn biography, Lush Life, New York Times named it one of the 100 best nonfiction books ever. Uh, your most recent book we know is Love for Sale, Pop Music in America. We know you are a music critic for The Nation, professor at the Columbia School of Journalism, and that you've written lyrics for the jazz singer Karen Oberlin, who happens to be your wife. So David Heydu. <laughs> Delighted to have you here. Tell us something we don't know about you. I'm almost deaf in my left ear. I did not know that.
3: I, it, it's not an attribute in a music critic, generally speaking. <laughs> but uh, it happened when I was a kid. I, I would hide my transistor radio and my, burrow it into my pillow and fall asleep listening to my transistor. At the top volume. And uh, I would listen to the music all night until the battery wore out, Mm. as did my
0: hearing. But it's uh, pretty cool to have an occupational injury as a music critic, yeah. David Haydun, very happy to have you here. Our next panelist, Faith Saley, Faith We know you are a contributor for CBS Sunday Morning, a host of Science Goes to the Movies, and author of the wonderful memoir Approval Junkie. You've held forth on many musical topics, including why Dolly Parton should be president. Faith, we also know that the music you were exposed to in childhood, including uh, big helpings of Olivia Newton-John and the soundtrack to Hair, that they came primarily from a pile of eight-track tapes your parents found by the side of the road driving home from church. (laughs) Tell us now something we don't know about you.
2: I um, have sung Ave Maria at two weddings, and those couples are still married. (laughs) I sang Annie's song at one wedding, and I think it caused their divorce.
0: <laughs> so is the implication that any couple that chooses Annie's song for their wedding doesn't deserve to stay married? I is, think uh, it's
2: fair. Any, any, any couple that chooses me to sing John Denver at their wedding?
0: Faith Sally, thank you so much. Danny Goldberg... We know that you started as a music journalist, went on to become a manager, record company executive, and much more among the bands you have managed, Nirvana, the Beastie Boys, the Allman Brothers, among the labels you have run, Mercury, Warner Brothers, and Atlantic. We know you're now president of Gold Village Entertainment and author of the new book, In Search of the Lost Chord, 1967, and The Hippie Idea. So Danny Goldberg, tell us something we don't yet know about you.
4: I think I was one of the pioneers in fake news. Uh, in, uh, in 1973, when I was 22, I became the publicist for Led Zeppelin, who were managed by a very intimidating guy named Peter Grant. And I was terrified of him. And the first show on the tour was they sold out the Atlanta Stadium, which was 50,000 people. And um, afterwards, he said, we have to have somebody say this is the biggest thing that happened to Atlanta since gone with the wind. This was my first day on this assignment. And I called up a journalist and said, um, the mayor of Atlanta, Sam (laughs) Massell, said that this is the biggest thing to happen to Atlanta since gone with the wind. And she said, really? (laughs) I said, absolutely, and it ran in England, and uh, the mayor never complained, and uh, I survived as the publicist.
0: So that's how it works. That's how it works, yeah. Danny, Faith, David, so glad all of you are here to play Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Here's how it's going to work. Guests from the audience will come on stage and tell us their IDKs, their I-don't-knows. Once you've heard them all, you will pick a winner based on three simple criteria. Number one, did they tell you something you truly did not know? Number two, was it worth knowing? And number three, is it demonstrably true? Now, we usually have a standard issue fact checker to help with that demonstrably true part, but music being music, we thought, what if tonight our fact checkers could be some of the absolute best practitioners of American music? So, would you please welcome to the stage Dan Zanes and friends? Dan Zanes, here's what we know about you. After a misspent youth in rock and roll with the Del Fuegos, you spent the last couple decades introducing new songs and reconnecting people to songs that have always been there. And you've got the Grammy Award to prove it. With you tonight are on violin, trumpet, mandolin, etc., also with a background in urban policy and ethnomusicology, Elena Moon Park. On drums and other noisy things, originally from Little Rock, Arkansas, where you got to start playing all-ages punk shows, Colin Brooks. And on vocals, a music therapist and singer from Boston, Massachusetts, Claudia Eliaza. Dan, uh, you call this thing that you guys do family music. Uh, What's that mean? How'd you get started? Well,
5: it got started when my daughter was young, and uh, she's here tonight. She's 22 now. And... um, I was looking for the music that was something that we could listen to together that would be a shared experience. We could both have an emotional connection to it. For me, that would be the updated version of the Folkways records I grew up with, in particular the music of Lead Belly, who's known as the king of the 12-string guitar, an African-American singer and guitar player. Children's music was pretty well covered when uh, when my daughter was born, but this Mm all-ages music was what I was looking for. And Mm Lead Belly was the template, and I would say is the father of... Modern family music.
0: You want to give us a little taste right now?
5: Let's do that. Here's a song about a train called the Rock Island Line.
0: Nicely done. Let's play Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Would you please welcome our first contestant, Beata Moon. (laughs) All right, Beata, welcome. Tell us a bit about yourself.
1: Hi, I'm a pianist, composer, and teaching artist.
0: Okay, I am ready. So are our panelists, David Haydu, Faith Saley, and Danny Goldberg. So what do you know that's worth knowing that you think we don't know?
1: I have a simple task for the panel. Name five classical composers.
0: Uh, Bartok
3: Brahms, Delius, Jimmy Greenwood, Kip Winger. Oh,
0: he goes obscure, David Haydew, <laughs> <laughs> showing off the hey, music what? critic credentials. But Wait,
2: can I add on? Yes. Mm-hmm. I feel like I can name five because my small children watch a show called Little Einsteins. Um, Tchaikovsky, uh, Mozart, um, Vivaldi, uh, Mendelssohn. Um, Excellent. Is Edvard
4: Grieg one? Yeah, he is? Very good. Oh, good. I just like all that right. name. Yeah. Danny, do you want to show Chopin, your... Debussy, Liszt, Schubert, and Ornette Coleman.
0: Ah. Nice. Nice That's twist. What. Nice twist. Okay, so all the panelists are capable of naming five classical, in quotes, composers. What's your point?
1: My second question is, what do they all have in common?
2: Great wigs.
0: They're composers. Right? <laughs> composers. They're all
2: men. They're
1: all men. What's up with that?
0: that's true good that's what you're that's what you're looking for
1: yes (laughs) and they're actually i'm not sure of the couple that you mentioned wait Mendelssohn. Mendelssohn. right that was a
2: brother and sister team yes right
1: (laughs) that's right so women composers throughout history stood in the shadows of their male counterparts because of their circumstances women were not allowed to hold music positions which was one of the support systems for male composers they were expected to have a family and get married. And also, they were not expected to write large scale works like symphonies or orchestras. And that would have given them a bigger place in history.
2: Was there no musical, you know, girls needed to learn how to sew and play the piano. So, was there music theory taught to young women?
1: Some women or some girls were fortunate enough if they lived in higher, upper class uh, families. As you said, Mendelssohn's sister, Fanny, was also taught music. And actually, I wanted to share with you um, one of my—I love women composers. uh, One of my favorite discoveries is women ragtime composers. Mm. And here is an excerpt from Adeline Shepard. ¶¶ many cases where women composers influenced the famous men we know of today. Mozart's older sister, Nannerl, and Mendelssohn's sister, Fanny, were talented musicians who were discouraged from pursuing musical careers. Here's a little of Fanny Mendelssohn. And here in the United States, Ruth Crawford Seeger's classical compositions were overlooked for years until 1986 when Matilda Guam wrote an extensive biography about her.
0: I'm so glad we had the piano tune tonight. That is beautiful. It's really fantastic. Thank you so much, Beata. Uh, So panelists, um, tell me what surprises you or doesn't surprise you male and female composers through the ages?
3: Well, one thing that
0: that, uh, comes
3: to mind for me is is the distinction between the way that music was thought of in the domestic realm, in the home, and in the professional realm, because in the domestic realm, through the 18th, particularly the 19th century, and the, the early 20th century, women were encouraged to make music, and the association with femininity uh, continued with, and stayed with music into
0: the mid 20th century, uh, when being musical was thought of as being feminine. Uh, Before we finish up with Beata, let's check in with Dan Zanes and Friends, uh, overlooked female composers. Dan, what do you know?
5: Ruth Crawford Seeger, known for her compositions, also wrote the book that was the cornerstone. It's the cornerstone literature, and it's called American Folk Songs for Children. Her day job was transcribing uh, field recordings at the Library of Congress, and a lot of the songs she thought might be suitable for young folks. And so she would take them into the nursery school where her children, Mike Seeger and Peggy Seeger, were students. Not only is it a songbook, but it's also it's a how-to. The first third of the book basically talks about how folk music functions in the lives of young people. So, if there was ever any question about the importance of folk music, singing, participation, freedom, flexibility in music, everything is touched on in there. So, this song that we're about to play is from that, and it's one of our, I guess you'd say, greatest hits, called "All Around the Kitchen."
6: You put your arms in the air. cock doodle doodle You put your hands in your hair. cock doodle doodle You spin around in a circle. All around the kitchen. cock a doodle All around the kitchen.
5: You get the idea. <laughs>
0: Thank you, Dan Zanes and friends, and thank you so much, Beata Moon, for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Great job. Yeah. Would you please welcome our next contestant, Derek Thompson.
7: Hey, Derek, who are you? What do you do? I'm a senior editor and writer at The Atlantic Magazine and the author of a new book, Hitmakers: The Science of Popularity in an Age of Distraction.
0: All right. The Science of Popularity sounds fun for us. What do you have? There are so many ways to write a song, so why do so many modern pop songs
7: have bridges?
2: Is it like a commercial when you're watching a TV show, like if you're a little bored and you need to pee, you can just run and go do that and come back to the song?
0: (laughs) So Danny Goldberg, were you ever like sitting around in a hotel room or backstage and one of your bands like... They had the verse, they had the chorus, and they needed the bridge, and then you came in and said, here, here you go, I got the bridge for you. Is that what you did as a manager? Absolutely not. <laughs>
4: uh, I know my place. My place is to say, great bridge.
2: <laughs> Can we back up a second? Would you please define the bridge?
7: Sure. Um, a bridge I would define as a piece of music um, which is equivalent neither to the verse nor the chorus, and yet is situated um, Almost entirely in the second half of the song.
2: Is it like delaying gratification? You're, you've invested in the song, and you're just—we're not going to bring you to the end yet. We want—that's
7: what I think. I think
3: there's an element to that. Yes. Yeah.
2: Could you ever have a whole song that's all bridge? No, you could not. Okay, just checking.
3: I'm running through the history of pop music in my head. There was music. E- there were even bigger hits than there are today in the 19th century. There were songs that sold three, four, five million copies in sheet music. They were played by women around them piano. Then it was when music became professionalized, when the Tin Pan Alley era, that we started to see bridges. So it's something that could add variety, clearly. It could add a new point of view, you know, a shift in point of view.
0: All right, Derek Thompson, why do pop songs have bridges? I think we got really, really close. Um,
7: My answer to this question comes from Ohio State University, a musicologist named David Huron. And he has this experiment that he does uh, with mice where he'll play a note for a mouse, say a B note, and the mouse will turn its head. And he'll play the B note again, and the mouse will turn its head. And he'll play B, 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 over and over. And eventually the mouse will habituate. It will learn to ignore the stimulus of the B note. But if at that very moment that the mouse is about to habituate to the B note, you instead play a C note, the mouse will turn its head. And it will not only stimulate the mouse, it will also dishabituate the mouse from that B note. So now you can go back to playing the B note to scare the mouse. It turns out that if you want to scare a mouse for the longest period of time... Which we do. ...with the fewest number of notes, you want to play a very specific sequence. And it goes like this. B, 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 C. B, B, C. B, C... And the D note dishabituates from both the B and the C (laughs) note And so you take a little sliver of this sequence And it goes B, B, C, B, C, D And if you replace the letter B With the word verse And you replace the letter C With the word chorus And you replace the letter D With the word bridge You get the following song structure verse, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, which is effectively the song structure of an absolutely enormous number of pop songs to have been written since the Tin Pan Alley days. So the lesson here is that there seemed to be exactly what you said, some law of repetition, which is the God particle of music, that which distinguishes the cacophony of the world from what the brain recognizes as song, and variety, a specific pattern of repetition and variety that keeps our attention. And that the same general principle that keeps this poor mouse distracted in front of these poor research students at Ohio State University,
0: also seems to work in a more macro sense. So interesting, Derek. Uh, Dan Zanes and friends, pop songs and bridges. Dan, do you you have like a a favorite bridge and a pop song of all time? Whew,
5: a good bridge is an amazing thing. So here, I I think this is probably the best of them all. We'll go verse, chorus, and right into the bridge. And we sure would like it if everyone would sing along.
6: I am so afraid That we Might have to part Each night I,
5: this is the chorus
6: The stars up above Why must I be A teenager In love Here's the bridge I cried a tear Nobody But you I would be lonely one if you should say we're through back to the verse but if you won't make me cry that won't be so hard to if you should say goodbye I'll still go on loving chorus each night I ask the stars up above all together
0: Zane's and friends, nicely done. Derek Thompson, great job. Thank you so much for playing. Very good stuff. Would you please welcome our next contestant, Natalia Peruz.
8: Hi, Natalia. What's your story? Hi. I play an unusual musical instrument. I've played this instrument in many movie soundtracks and anywhere from Carnegie Hall, Lincoln Center, and Madison Square Garden to the New York City Subway.
0: Okay, uh, and is that what you want to tell us about tonight, is your instrument?
8: Uh, It is the instrument. Okay. My question is, what common household object wound up being an instrument in liturgical music in the 19th century? Does liturgical give
2: us a clue? Perhaps. So was it a sacred household object?
3: I
8: mean, we're not talking a bedpan, right? No. Okay. It wasn't sacred. It was just a common yeah. household object. Well,
3: different. objects are more or less common in households in different locations. But if it's r- rural household, it might be like a construction thing, like a hammers,
8: saw. Ah! Saw. So, you got it. Awesome. It the is bag. a saw. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well right. done.
0: Natalia, you're, you're trying to tell us you play the saw.
8: I play the saw. How many fingers
2: saw. do you have? I still have all of you them. Have, all right, you have ten <laughs> fingers. Have you ever cut one?
8: Uh, no, I'm very fortunate and very careful with my saw, but also the saw that I play today has no teeth, thanks to the New York City police. They gave me a ticket saying that the teeth are a weapon, and therefore I cannot play it in a public space. Does and, the lack of teeth affect your sound? No, the amount of metal in the teeth is so small that fortunately it makes no difference for the sound.
0: Can you tell us, though, how the saw got to be used in liturgical music?
8: The discovery that a hand saw can make uh, music was made by lumberjacks, perhaps as might be expected. But what is less expected is the turn that the musical saw took about 100 years later from being a folk instrument to being what one might call a liturgical instrument because it was adopted by priests and missionaries to aid in their work. Throughout the second half of the 1800s and into the early 1900s, priests and missionaries, mostly from Europe, could not take much with them. And so musical instruments were an uncommon luxury. But handsaws were essential because they needed to build a church at their destination. And so when it came time for them to teach the locals the melodies of the hymns, they used what they had, the saw, to lead the singing. Now, if you think of the sound of the saw, it lends itself well to the atmosphere that the church wishes to create. It is angelic, spiritual, mesmerizing. It is the closest sound to that of the human voice. Today, churches throughout the world still have the occasional musical saw player playing for Sunday service, myself being one of them. Mm, mm. Does it sound like a theremin? Actually, yeah. the theremin sounds like the saw because okay, historically, sure. yes. when Leon Theremin was inventing his instrument, the saw was at its heyday back then. Aren't there
3: there are one string instruments in Asian music also that are the erhu
8: sounds family. very similar. That's right. I feel like I could play a one stringed instrument. <laughs> is, that, is, it, is it difficult to play the saw? It takes a lot of muscles in your left arm. And and so you
2: hold the saw as if it were a violin?
8: Well, most saw players play sitting down. You place the handle between your knees, you hold the tip with your left hand if you're right-handed, and you hold the bow with your right hand, and you bow it.
0: Now, you're actually going to play for us, yes?
8: I would love to. Since we're talking about liturgical music, I would like to play a praise song called Holy Spirit, Living Breath of God.
0: Gorgeous. Really nice.
2: You know, you you look you look so joyful playing that. That was really beautiful, and it's also Thank as you. if like you're very you it's you very much animate the instrument. It was very beautiful to it's watch. It's very
8: physical, and uh, it is uh, one of the only instruments where the entire instrument moves when you play it. If you think of a violin, a cello, the bow moves but the instrument itself is stable. Here, it's not just the, the bow that moves, the entire body of the, the, the blade moves.
0: So interesting. Dan Zane's Natalia Peruz, and the musical saw. You have anything to add?
5: Ah, oh, that was so good. Thank you. Well, it reminds me of a couple of things. One is, of course, um, I'm thinking about one of the, the, the 20th century famous saw player was Marlena Dietrich. who learned when she was on set in 1927, filming the movie Cafe Electric.
8: We do have recordings of her playing the saw from her performances for um, soldiers during World War II.
5: The, the other thing that I know about saw players is that um, the most famous gathering of saw players was organized by Natalia and that's in the Guinness Book of World Records. How many saw players did you have? We
8: beat the previous record which was done in Poland. They had 23 saw players. We had 53. So nice we basically that. doubled. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Natalia, I thank you so much for coming tonight. Great job. Beautiful. It's time now for a quick break. When we return, more contestants. We will make our panelists tell us or maybe sing us something we don't know. If you'd like to be a contestant on a future show or attend a future show, please visit TMSIDK.com. You can follow us on social media at TMSIDK underscore show. We will be right back. to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. My name is Stephen Dubner. Our panelists tonight, David Haydu, Face Sally and Danny Goldberg. Our fact-checking family band is Dan Zanes and Friends. And tonight's theme, of course, is music. Now, earlier tonight, we asked our live audience here in New York to answer the following question. What are some famous song lyrics that you or someone else misheard for a long time? So, panelists, I'd love each of you to read one of these David Haydu, you first, please. I don't get what's wrong about this because this is, I think this is you right. You think that's the right lyric? Yeah. Hold me closer,
3: Tony Danza, um, <laughs> <laughs> El, Elton John. Yeah? Well, I, I don't think
0: so. I used so. to see <laughs>
2: Tony Danza at my gym, and he is quite huggable.
0: Okay, uh, Faith Saley, who do you have?
2: Um, this is from someone's mother in law. There's a bad moon on the rise, Creedence Clearwater Revival. Turned into there's a bathroom on the right (laughs) I suppose at 80 It's wishful thinking
0: Nice Danny Goldberg what do you have Yeah this is from Zoe
4: C And and the song is Mrs. Robinson by Paul Simon That Simon and Garfunkel recorded And she said my friend misheard The actual lyric Jesus loves you more than you will know As she's a slutty Mormon
0: You will know (laughs) All right, let's get back to our game. Would you please welcome our next contestant, Yosef Surrett.
9: Good evening, Yosef. Uh, where are you from? What do you do? I'm a professor and author at Columbia University where I teach religion and African American studies. Excellent. What do you have for us tonight? So uh, in 2016, Kanye West released Life of Pablo and Chance the Rapper uh, released Coloring Book. Both albums were nominated for A Grammy in the category of Best Rap Album. Chance went on to win. What do both of these albums have in common?
2: I mean, rhymes. (laughs) Yes. I think we're done here.
9: You teach
3: religion. I teach in the religion department. Does that have bearing?
9: That may be a good hint. That may be a helpful cue.
3: Because I I was thinking of something else. I, I thought they might not be released. On CD or not be released in
9: tangible form, in material form. And that is where the big buzz around Chance was. He was the first uh streaming-only artist to be nominated and win a Grammy. But Kanye's Life of Pablo... But that's not what you're looking for. No, Kanye's was not a streaming-only.
2: I know very little about Kanye West except Kim Kardashian and he's crazy. Um, Does it have to do with the musical content of both albums?
9: That... Would also be a good move in the right direction. Okay.
2: Yeah. Do they both mention um, a religious figure? Hmm. I mean, Kanye West thinks he's a religious figure, but, but yeah, a legit one.
9: Yeah, the first we're, we're getting we're getting we're moving in the I mean, right are we, direction. Are we talking are, Jesus Christ uh, Jesus is part of this story. Yes.
2: But do they both quote the Bible?
9: That's getting us closer in the Let's direction of a disguised. more specific...
3: Does Islam play a part in this? No,
0: no. Yosef, it sounds like the panelists have put together a lot of little pieces that are going in the right direction. Do you sure, want, do you want I, to take us um, all the way there?
9: So both of these albums featured an individual who's arguably the most popular gospel musician of the last two decades, Kirk Franklin. And both in different ways, uh, both of these albums could be considered either by the creators themselves or by audiences and critics as gospel music. Right, So it's not uncommon that uh, African-American musicians come out of the church. The idea is typically that they may bring with them the cadences, the rhythms, the emotional effect, but they leave behind the explicitly Christian content, if you will. Saturday Night Live featured Kanye's performance of Ultralight Beam, one of the popular songs on Life of Pablo, backed by a gospel choir with a guest verse by Chance the Rapper. At the end of this performance, he prostrates himself on the floor, and Kirk Franklin comes out, lays hands on him, prays for uh, Kanye West there. So in 2016... Kanye is declaring that Life of Pablo should be uh, received as gospel music, which seems a far cry from where hip-hop's origin stories are, right? It's sort of viewed as public enemy number one. We think of Calvin Butts, the pastor of Abyssinian Baptist Church up in Harlem, threatening to steamroll gangster rap. And now we have... Rappers claiming that their music is gospel. But
4: what about Run D.M.C.? I mean, Reverend Run. Reverend Run, Run yes, is, absolutely, is a minister.
9: So it's not the first time that hip hop and Christianity have overlapped. No, there's a long history. In fact, uh, Sylvia Robinson talks about divine inspiration for her decision to market the first crossover, right, Sugar Hill Gang's uh, "Rappers' Delight." That there even was a story about God at the center of that first popularization of hip-hop. Right? So, but to listen to Chance's music, it's undeniable whether or not he claims it, to hear him borrowing from the architect of urban praise and worship, Fred Hammond. So it's a blending of Chance's own Christian faith, uh, borrowing from Colorado's evangelical Bible Belt.
3: Yes, you know, so I'm curious, can you tell us how this music is taken in the sphere of the black church. Because I know that in the white evangelical world, there's uh, particularly in megachurches, uh, the church services are like rock
9: concerts. We can see a broader swath of megachurches, both black and white and various shades in between, that embrace celebrity. We think here in New York City, in fact, of uh, the recent church plant Hillsong that is you know, sort of described as cold play for Christians, right? Where, or hippie Christianity, where there's a hipster aesthetic, meets with rock concert. In fact, I took some students to one of their services. You would think we were lining up for a nightclub. So I think there's quite a deal of overlap that is a longer history of popular music, right? The, we think of the story of modern gospel music is of a blues musician baptizing that music in the sacred verse of the black church. So I think Isn't there's a lot there. Isn't
3: there a literal church of John Coltrane?
9: There is in San Francisco, no. absolutely. Yeah.
0: Dan Zanes, the continued intermingling of church music, maybe even gospel music and pop music that Yosef's been telling us about, uh, what's that bring to your mind? This has been so good.
5: We thought we would go over to one of the giants of early gospel music, Charles Tinley, hmm. who, wrote, uh, who wrote Stand By Me, which is not exactly in melody, but certainly in theme was sort of shifted um, into a secular song so we'll do a little uh, we'll do a couple we'll do a stand by me sacred into the secular
6: when the storms of life are raging stand by me
10: stand by me
6: when the storms of life are raging stand by me stand by me when the world Send me like a ship out on the sea He who knoweth all about it Stand by me Stand by me Stand by me Oh Lord, don't you stand by me Every day
0: Nicely done. Dan Zanes and friends. Nicely done. Yosef Soret, thank you so much for playing. Tell me something I don't know. Great job. Would you please welcome our final contestant of the evening, Kristen Blunt. Come on up. Good evening, Kristen. Where are you from? I'm from Massachusetts. Okay, the floor is yours. What do you have?
11: I've been working on the railroad. Fly me to the moon. And take me out to the ball game are some of the songs I use in my line of work. What do I do?
0: Are you the most awesome ballpark organist ever?
11: No, not yet. Are you the most
2: adorable burlesque performer? No, no.
8: <laughs> I mean, not you during could the week. Be.
2: Okay. No. Does your audience for these songs give us a massive clue to what you do? Yes. Okay. Is your audience mostly? Uh, uh, adults. Yes.
3: Are they old adults? Yes. So you're a, a therapist for uh, Alzheimer's patients?
11: <gasps> yes. Yeah. <Nailed> it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so m- music is a way to unlock our memories, right? Correct. Right. So I do music therapy for Alzheimer's and dementia patients. And these are all songs among hundreds that are effective in treating Alzheimer's and dementia. I've worked in elder care now for 11 years and use music nearly in every program. A couple of activities in particular show the power music has with memory. For example, during games of Wheel of Fortune, I'll try to get patients to guess letters of the alphabet to fill in the puzzle. They can't think of a single letter. But as soon as I play two or three notes of the song on the piano, they in unison will start singing along, remember every word and every note change. Another example is While working with uh, one of my patients, she won't be able to walk, and I'll start singing You Are My Sunshine, and she starts singing along, her legs will straighten, and she'll walk to the rhythm of the music that way. So early studies suggest that familiar music triggers the frontal and temporal lobes of the brain, which are also the last parts of the brain affected by dementia and Alzheimer's. It boosts serotonin, which naturally improves mood, and stimulates the hippocampus, which is the center of emotion and memory. Patients who listen to music rather than taking the usual anti-anxiety drugs have demonstrated lower levels of the stress hormone cortisol. Is there science behind which songs to choose? Are it's, they all ones it's we- very personal? It's different for each patient. Um, I'll play an hour of music for a group of people, and uh, usually I have specific songs that it triggers a large crowd. Um, it also is like a time warp. It will remind them of that specific time. Um, music triggers channels in the brain that medicine and other, um, you know, medication they won't touch. But as soon as the music starts playing, it opens those portals, and so you're tapping into that person that's still inside. What,
4: what age... Is the imprinting
11: um, that will depend on the progress of the disease in that patient. So there's some songs that it will bring them back to childhood, and there's other songs that will bring them back to, you know, early adulthood.
0: I totally don't doubt the uh, the uniqueness of music to connect. But I'm curious, um, does familiarity with physical objects do some of the same trick?
11: Yeah, like baby dolls. I've found, you'll see a grown woman who's had 12 grandchildren, um, but she doesn't know where she is or why she's there. And you hand her a baby doll and she goes back to those mothering instincts and she's calmed down and she has a purpose again.
2: To your point, Danny, I once interviewed um, a neuroscientist who's also a musician named Daniel Levitin. And he talked about the the music that is most transportative, if that's a word, um, is the music that we heard as teenagers.
4: Yeah, that's what I right. think. Right. So yes. it's
2: like I can I can sing any lyric to songs from the 80s, not the 90s. And right. and he said it's because what is happening in our in our like our growth, both um, physiologically and emotionally, during even like a span of five years, yeah. there is so intense that that those songs are just embedded in our memory. They're, like, seared into our hearts, too.
3: And there's a specific time, very narrow time Which period. Which explains like, why I cry when I like hear th- Paula Abdul, but go ahead. 13, 13 and a half for females and around 14 for boys. It's a very specific time period, just according to Leviton. It's, it's kind of a perfect storm of things that, that all take place simultaneously. Persons kind of uh, coming-of-age... As an individual, developing a person's own sense of individual identity, so that music retains a special place.
0: So interesting, um, Dan Zanes using music to connect people with their own pasts. Uh, you have any experience with that? A little. So
5: this has got me thinking about uh, about just that um, because I do I do all ages music. When my daughter had her three year old birthday party, um, she asked if my brother in law and I would play the song "Over the Rainbow." And so we learned it. And I thought that's that's all ages music because everybody from two and three year olds to grandparents, everybody was singing along. And so um, it's it's powerful the way the music can uh, can pull people together. So let's let's actually have that experience um, here today. Let's all sing this one together. My daughter's here, so I want her to sing louder than anybody else because you know you started it. <laughs>
6: Some
0: Fantastic. Thank you, Dan Zanes, and thank you so much, Kristen Blunt, for playing Tell Me Something, I Don't Know. Can we give them all a hand one more time? Great, great work, guys. It is time now for the panelists to pick a winner. Our panelists will use a ranked voting system to pick their favorites. The contestant with the highest overall ranking will be tonight's winner, and will join us back on stage later All right, then, who will it be? Kristen Blunt with The Healing Power of Music, Yosef Surrett with Holy Hip Hop, Natalia Peruz with The Saw from Lumberjacks to Liturgy, Derek Thompson with Why Pop Songs Have Bridges, or Beata Moon with Hidden Musical Figures. While the votes are being cast, let me ask you a favor. If you enjoy Tell Me Something I Don't Know, Please spread the word. Give it a nice rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks very much. (laughs) Panelist votes are in. Once again, thanks so much to all our contestants again. Only one of you can advance, but we do have for each of you tonight this Certificate of Impressive Knowledge. (laughs) But tonight's winner, with her IDK about the Saw, Natalia Peruz. Congratulations. (laughs) Great job, Natalia. And uh, you will come back on stage later to face one of our panelists in the final round of Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Which one will you face? We will find that out right after this break. Welcome back. Time now for our panelist round. This is something we've never done before. As we all know, and as we certainly heard tonight, music is really one of the most formative, most resonant things in our life. So we thought what we'd do is we'd ask each of our panelists, David Haydu, Faye Saley, and Danny Goldberg, we'd ask them, what's the first meaningful song you learned to sing, and then we'll make them sing it for us. <laughs> so, so David Haydu. We'll start with you. Tell us a bit about growing up and and that first meaningful song.
3: Well, I grew up uh, in New Jersey, and the first song that I learned that I felt like had a special power to me, uh, this is a little embarrassing... Uh, it was Hanky Panky <laughs> by Tommy James and the Shondells, and it just seemed like the filthiest thing. <laughs> it was a
0: source of boundless fascination uh, to me, so Hanky Panky. Dan, Zanes, and friends over here, you think you can uh, work up a little Hanky Panky for David Haydu?
3: Wait a minute. Oh. My baby does the Hanky Panky. My baby does the Hanky Panky. My baby does the Hanky Panky. My baby
0: does the Hanky Panky. Woo! Wow! David Haydew, ladies and gentlemen. Wow!
2: That was amazing! That was
0: fantastic.
2: How did you remember those lyrics? I
0: didn't. <laughs> Love that, David Haydu. Loved that so much. Faith Saley, tell us, uh, you grew up in Atlanta, Georgia?
2: I, well, I, I moved there when I was six, so I grew up in uh, a little town outside of Boston before then. And, um, and as you all know, my parents <laughs> found our music by the side of the road. And among the many eight-track tapes that they recovered um, was a John Denver eight-track tape. And one of the first songs, I probably was three or four, I remember singing Country Roads. No. Oh, and, and a nice coda. I'm going to use a musical metaphor. <laughs> um, is that my children, who are two and four, recently discovered John Denver. And now my, my son told me, This is a quote. My signature song is Rocky Mountain High. So I I feel like that's like, if you can get your kids interested in John Denver at an early age, things are going to go well. I think you're
0: a good mom, yeah. Thank you. So Dan Zanes and friends, uh, you got some country roads for Faith Sailing? I think we we got it. All right, let's hear what you got.
2: Almost heaven, West Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountain. Life was old there, old.
0: A great voice you have Faith Danny Goldberg what's the song first meaningful song that you learned to sing
4: well my parents had a lot of folk records, Pete Seeger, Burl Ives and uh, immediately came into my mind was certainly the first love song I ever heard and liked, I've never sung anything publicly before but gotta start sometime <laughs> That's and, a spirit. Uh, This one is for Karen. You are my sunshine My only sunshine You make me happy When skies are gray You'll never know, dear How much I love you Please don't take my sunshine away.
0: I don't think you should have waited so long to sing, Danny. Our live audience will now pick a winner based on our little first song talent contest, and that winner will face our contestant winner in the final round of Tell Me Something I don't know. So who's it gonna be? David Haydu? and his really astonishingly emotive version of Hanky Panky, Faith Saley, and her crystal clear, beautiful version of Country Roads, or Danny Goldberg and his super heartfelt, I believed every word you sang, version of You Are My Sunshine. First, let's give them all a hand. And audience, if you now would please take out your phones and follow the texting instructions on the screen to vote. The audience votes have been tallied, and our panelist winner tonight, apparently it pays to do the hanky-panky. David, hey, dude. Congratulations. Aww. <laughs> Aww, and let's bring up our audience winner, Natalia Peruz, for the final round now of Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Our final round is very simple. In a moment, we will spin what we like to call our Wheel of Maximum Danger. It is a roulette wheel loaded up with topics that are somehow related to tonight's theme music. Whichever topic it lands on, well, Natalia and David, you'll have to tell us something we don't know about that topic. There will be no Googling, no help from the audience, just whatever is rattling around in your own brain. All right, we're going to give the wheel a spin now. David, you want, you want Faith to help you, and, Dan- yes. and, and Natalia, you want Danny to help you. We can make it a team sport if you okay. want. Yeah? Right? yeah, yeah, yeah. All right? Oh, great. Okay. Okay. The theme is musicals. We've talked about all different kinds of music today, classical music, all kinds of pop music, gospel music. I don't think we've even touched on musicals. We're going to give each of you guys a moment to confer. While the finalists are thinking... Let me remind you to visit TMSIDK.com to get tickets to upcoming shows or to be a contestant. If you'd like to suggest a theme for a future episode or recommend a panelist, give us a shout on Facebook or Twitter. We go by TMSIDK underscore show. David Haydu, music critic, uh, occasional uh, lyricist and musician, tell us something we don't know about musicals. In the original uh, script uh, to West Side Story...
3: The opening uh, number took place in a malt shop where the Jets were uh, trading information about comic books. And Stephen Sondheim wrote lyrics for a song that would be all about comic books. And the idea was that that would immediately communicate to the audience that these kids must be idiots and degenerates. It comes from my research for a book I wrote about uh, comics in the 50s called The Ten Cent Plague.
0: Nicely done, David Haydew. Uh Natalia Peru's musicals, what would you come up with?
8: About 20 years ago, when I was just learning to play the saw, I used to have a job as a souvenir salesperson at the Broadway theaters. So in between, I would go and sit outside the theater, and I would practice playing the saw. And the music director of the musical Crazy For You, which I was working for, uh, Walked by and heard me, and that actually gave him the idea to put the saw into I Got Rhythm, which was a number in this show. No
0: way. For real? For real. Natalia, that is something (laughs) else. Great job. All right, let's do a nice little throat boat because I think we should all clap. First of all, let's hear what you thought of David Haydu and Stephen Sondheim's. And now for Natalia Peru's Bringing the Saw to Broadway. It sounds like tonight's winner is Natalia Peruz. Congratulations. Now, Natalia, what prize could we possibly give you to celebrate this special uh, achievement? Well, uh, for starters, because tonight is a special night, uh, we've got two prizes. Number one, a private lesson on guitar or ukulele, your choice, with the great American musician, Dan Zanes. (laughs) And prize number two There's going to be one final song performed in your honor right now by Dan Zanes and friends, the wonderful Elena Moon Park, Colin Brooks, and Claudia Eliaza. And uh, if there's room at the piano, I'm going to jump in with you guys. And, and Dan, you think we can get the whole audience to sing with us? I would love that. And... Um... I just want to mention that
5: I first met Stephen Dubner before he was Stephen Dubner. He was in a band called The Right Profile in North Carolina, so we're all out there wasting our youth together. If you want to know about pre-Steven Dubner, Stephen Dubner, if you want to know some of the stories, um, just send me a message at danzanes.com, and I'll send you some of what I consider the the great untold stories. (laughs) Pre-economics, if you will. (laughs) Uh, this is a song. Everybody knows this song. This is called This Little Light of Mine, and we'll do a a version similar to the staple singers version.
0: That is our show for tonight. I hope we told you something you did not know about music. Thanks so much to our panelists, David Haydew, Faith Saley, and Danny Goldberg. To our brilliant contestants, thanks to Dan Zanes and friends, and thanks especially to you for coming to play Tell Me Something. I don't know. Hey, podcast listeners. This was our last episode of Season 2. Don't worry, Season 3 starts on June 4th, and it's going to be great. We'll be coming to you from Boston, Chicago, and Minneapolis. You will hear my Freakonomics friend and co-author Steve Levitt. You'll hear Tiger Mom and Yale Law professor Amy Chua. Also, the rapper Rhymefest, On Being host Krista Tippett, CBS News correspondent Major Garrett and the one and only comedic force, Eugene Merman. Until then, why don't you tell your friends to subscribe to Tell Me Something I Don't Know? To get tickets to future tapings and even better, to become a contestant, please visit TMSIDK.com. Tell Me Something I Don't Know is produced by Dubner Productions in association with Stitcher. Our staff includes Allison Hockenberry, Emma Morgenstern, Harry Huggins, Brian Gutierrez, Dan DeZula, Andrew Dunn, and Rachel Jacobs. David Herman is our technical director. He also composed our theme music. Thanks also to our good friends at Qualtrics, whose online survey software has been so helpful in putting on this show. You can subscribe to Tell Me Something I Don't Know on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can listen at TMSIDK.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.